Okay, so it only took 45 minutes to sort our microphone settings out this week. Yep, pretty uh, pretty standard stuff. That's what we do, though, for, for the love of our listeners, eh? For the love of something. So um, I do apologise that I sounded like I was in a cave last week. I did sound like I was in a cave, didn't I? You sounded a bit like you were in a cave, and that was after me, admittedly as an amateur, uh, working on the audio for about six hours. <laughs> Again, for the love of the listeners, um, yeah, so you've just, yeah, six hours, whoo-wee. Anyway, anyway it, was, it was great to be back though, wasn't it? It's, uh, yeah, an absolute delight to be back. Thank you to all of those kind people on Twitter and uh, and a few by email who got in touch to say um, welcome back and um, and, that, and that kind of thing. It's always nice. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, I'm very much enjoyed recording again. Um, maybe I should just feed back a little bit because since uh, we last recorded, uh, my two-person book club um, had its first ever meeting. And um, and what sort of what what line of questioning did you go for? Because that's what you were unsure about in uh, the previous episode of this podcast. You told us you were doing this two person podcast with your husband. Book and, club, um, yeah. Book club, yes. Yeah, sorry, and <laughs> um, that would be well. Maybe that's the future. Maybe that's what we are. Is that is that is that on the cards? <laughs> no, I well, certainly not with me and my husband. Let's put it that way. It would. Um, it would, when I say resounding success, I should say that we, we did get about five or ten minutes discussion out of this book. And for me, that was a great success. Um, and yes, uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember whether I mentioned last week that the book was The Martian by Andy Weir. Yeah. Um, and I asked everybody last week, what do people do at book clubs? I've never been in a book club before. And if anybody had any ideas for questions that we could talk about so that I didn't just say to him, hello. What was your favourite bit? Um, and people did get in touch, so thank you very much. Isa Christie did on Twitter. She gave me a list of questions that she thought that she would ask if it was her in the book club with my husband. That would be a bit weird. Um, and I'm not sure she would enjoy it very much because he basically just talked about the only other book he's ever read, The Da Vinci Code. He, that did come up. Can you believe it, Ian? Morton did manage to mention The Da Vinci Code in the first meeting of our book club. In what context? How did he manage to link the two? I mean, surely that's <laughs> surely that's kind of um, the idea of a book club is that you you don't look at a book in isolation. You look at it compared to things that you've read previously, compared to, um, you know, cultural context and all these kinds of things. It sounds to me like he was treating the book club in the only way he could. <laughs> well, he absolutely was. And to be honest, I can't tell you in what context he, he mentioned it because as soon as he said something like, like take, for example, the Da Vinci Code, I just lost it. I said, oh my God, I can't believe it. I have to tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so then it deteriorated into um, me tweeting about the book club, kind of like yeah, weird meta book club discussion. Anyway, I think that this was a bit of a strange book to start with because um, of Matt Damon's uh, flipping face which is very difficult to get past. 
Did were you aware of The Martian before it became a Hollywood film? I was. I listened to the Hello Internet podcast, and they talked about this uh, several months ago as one of their. Uh, they have a Audible as a sponsor, and they, um, and uh, one of the co-hosts, Brady Harron, used The Martian as a, an example. You know, kind of, you should try Audible, and here's a book that I read, and um, and and, uh, and then more recently they talked about it again when when both of them had read it, and um, and and this is where they covered it um, by saying there's lots of detail, lots of very specific scientific detail and the impression I got I've not read it, but the impression I got was that kind of masked the story and then um, as in it kind of you know, it's the whole thing where if you research something to death or if you just know a subject incredibly well, you can forget to include some kind of story elements and you end up just reeling off a list of facts or information and, um, and so my limited knowledge was that this was a book that was high in science and perhaps not as high as it could be in terms of plot development and story, or maybe just pacing. Maybe the pacing was off. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that basically sums it up. You could have you, you could have been in the two person book club, but unfortunately, you couldn't because there's only place for two people. Um, Matt Damon on the front cover now because it's been made into a film, but it was recommended to me before that, and. It was pitched to everybody, to the whole world, as a survival story. So if I'm not, I don't think I'm giving away. There's no spoilers here. I'm not giving anything away by saying it's it's a survival story. Um, so if you know that a story is a survival story, that kind of means that you know how it's going to end, doesn't it? What's I mean is is that true? Is that the case for every single? I don't know. There must be some good examples. Do you, so is this why it's a problem that Matt Damon's on the front? Because you think that if you'd have been told that it was a survival story, just the book, there's no film being made, um, and and you've been told it's a survival story, and you think, well, they will probably survive, but it could go either way at this point. But as soon as you stick Matt Damon's face on the cover, you think, well, they're not going to kill Matt Damon. Exactly. Um, that was partly to do with it, but mainly I just had a problem with Matt Damon's face on the front because as soon as I started reading, obviously I just see Matt Damon bouncing around in his um, in his spacesuit. That's, I think that's a bit of a shame. I would have liked to have read the book before there was a film version, obviously, so that I didn't have to think about Matt Damon through an entire book. It's hard to think about Matt Damon through an entire book. I don't want to. Well, this is. I don't want to have to think about him that much. This is the problem with these, um, uh, you know, book to film uh, conversions. Is um, it does influence your thinking quite a lot, doesn't it? It does. It, it does become impossible yes. to, to see. Um, I mean, I uh, I read Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is massively popular. Um, I don't know, turn of the century, and. Uh, oh, you didn't read it after watching Nicolas Cage, did you? No, I did not. I read it before uh, Nicolas Cage came along and. And the film was... Ruined it? Yeah, I mean, it was bad, wasn't it? It was a terrible film. Oh, he's just so badly casted. It was... What on earth was he doing in that film? Do you have any film-to-book... Sorry, book-to-film conversions? That's not the right word, is it? What's the right word? Not conversion. Treatments? No, there's a proper word for it. Adaptation. Oh, yes. Adaptation's a good film with Nicolas Cage. Isn't that strange? There's a little link about screenwriting. Anyway, Karen. Yeah. Um, have you have you got a favourite? Are there any that you like? So books that have been made into films that I've thought were successful. Yeah, I've I have one where I preferred the film to the book, The English Patient. 
Right, yeah. Not I have watched the film. I haven't read the book. Yeah, I read the book and I was I read the book after the film. Uh, this was many, many, many moons ago. And there was all sorts of things in the book that weren't in the film, things to do with like arms dealing and stuff like that, which I just seemed completely misplaced because the, the film had taken the original spot in my head and I couldn't contemplate that there was another story. Um, but I, I guess it's always difficult. It's always difficult when you've read a book to see a film. But I haven't seen this film but just seeing his picture kind of ruined it. But but that actually is slightly off the point, and I'm sorry. I'm just going to go back to this thing about survival story. I can't think of a survival story where the main character is not going to survive. I mean, that's just the way it is. If you know it's a survival story, you know the end, so it's not about the end of the story. It's about getting there, and it's about how interesting that journey to get there is. Okay, Game of Thrones. Yes, well, Game of Thrones is... is, is we did talk about Game of Thrones in this two-person book club because that is absolutely wonderful that you never know who is going to survive at any point but you just said you just said that that <laughs> you just said that that wasn't the case you just said that there was no you, you couldn't think of a single example and that it, you knew that they were going to survive of a survival story hang on a second whoa hold on you're not don't say anything to me about game of thrones i haven't read them yeah, but you've watched every single film and had lengthy discussions with me on this podcast about, <laughs> about sorry, not film, uh, season. Yeah, no, but I said about a survival story. Yeah, but don't you think that Game of Thrones is just several survival stories all wrapped up into one? No. No. Well, it's definitely, it's definitely the idea of like a lead character being killed at any point. It does happen. Yeah, but that, that, I think that's, that's, the, that's the thing about Game of Thrones, though, isn't it? The idea of a lead character or not a lead, having a lead character. Perhaps the fact that there are many lead characters makes that easier to do. Exactly. And in this film, there is one. Matt Damon is trapped on Mars on his own and you know he's going to survive. And there's a lot of science that's going to get in there. How good a book is that going to be? <laughs> well, you, you, we, you tell we both, us. Well, I, you know, we enjoyed it at the start and then, and then it kind of, it fizzled out and the ending was disappointing. And... Also, my dad ruined it for me because now that we've all left home, he and my mum occasionally go to the cinema. And he, he and my mum went to see The Martian while we were reading it. And I just said to him, what did you think, Dad? He said, absolute rubbish. An hour and a half of Matt Damon growing potatoes in poo. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that sums up the book. So um, I hope I haven't spoiled it for anybody. But um, I did want to say that it was it was great to be chatting about a book but difficult to chat about one that was a Hollywood film because we ultimately just ended up talking about films and also talked a lot about space. So this time we're going a little bit more serious with our next book club choice. We're going for a Nobel Prize winner. Hmm, what could it be? A little light reading. Um, We're going to read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's that? little bit of Siberian labour camp uh, fun and games. Um, Whose idea was that? That was my one. Are you just trying to... Are you trying to... Um, what are you trying to do with this choice? <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you hope to gain from choosing that book? Trying to get as far away from Matt Damon as possible. It's, it's a very short book and it's supposedly absolutely fascinating and uh, it's about Russia under Stalin and... 
I, I've wanted to read it for a long time, I'm not going to lie, and I thought that this might be a book that Morton might like. Is it a uh, fiction? It's fiction, yeah. Okay. It's by Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, and he won the Nobel Prize after he'd uh, written this book. And it was very lucky to get this book published. He was very lucky to get this book published in Russia. Um, and um, anyway, I will report back on it. We'll see. I, I look forward to it. That was, um, yeah, well. So uh, anyway, so thank you for um, for suggestions of questions and things like that, everybody. And um, yeah, that's it. What have you been getting up to, Ian? Um, well, I was on uh, a different podcast. I was moonlighting. So um, I should probably tell people about that. Um, I, I was on um, uh, Inquisitive with former co-host of this podcast, Mike Hurley, who now is the corporal and general and uh, editor-in-chief of Relay FM. And um, he does the show. He does a number of shows, but he does a show called Inquisitive. And for the last two or three months, he's been interviewing people about their favorite albums. And... Um, uh, he did that with me. He asked me about my favourite album. It's an hour of us talking about that, um, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was good. I, I'm obviously I'm used to chatting away with you, um, and I've done a few other podcasts, uh, you know, guest slots as they say. But it's always been about writing, so it was interesting to talk about something different, and um, and quite nerve wracking as well. I found it quite... Why? I think I just... Oh, you didn't have more toilet troubles, did you, before this one? I didn't have any toilet troubles before this one. I managed to... I mean, I, I do always try and stay in the safe zone, but um, <laughs> I didn't have any specific troubles with that. It was just more because, you know, a different subject. And I spoke to Mike about it. I think it was after the podcast had finished, and I said, you know, I was unexpectedly nervous about that. And um, he said a lot of people are when they do that show because you feel like um, almost like you should know what you're talking about. If you're talking about music, uh, particularly if you're talking about a particular, you know, album or artist, then you should, uh, you feel like you should be the authority on that subject or you feel like you should be some kind of muso. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm very much into my music and always have been, but there is, you know, you know what music's like, there is always someone who's uh, listened to, you know, cooler stuff than you and is prepared to tell you that kind of thing. So, uh, but it was good. I enjoyed it. And it got me thinking about a topic that we might chat about now. And, and that's the idea of favourites in general. Um, and and I, I did think, my, the, I chose Damien Rice, uh, his album O, uh, which was his first album that came out in 2002. And I listened to it in 2002 and 2003 and 2004 especially. And uh, it reminds me an awful lot of a very specific time in my life and particularly about um, a couple of uh, specific events, one being when I travelled to Manchester with some pals to see him before um, anyone had ever heard of him and it was just like this incredible gig. But also um, it was what me and my wife listened to a lot when we first got together. So it has very sort of vivid, uh, brings back very vivid memories of a specific time for me. And, and so I chose that. Um, that was my immediate thought. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I'm not even, I don't know how I really feel about the music anymore. I don't really listen to the album that much anymore. And um, and should I really choose it? And I went back and I've, obviously I listened to it quite a lot. And some of the songs were just, you know, they didn't really do it for me in the same way anymore, even though they still reminded me of that time. And then a couple of other songs were better. Like, they were just much better than I remember them. And, and that just made me think, well, of course, 
that's going to be the case because I'm um, quick maths. I'm about 12 or 13 years older myself. Lots of different things um, have happened to me and my tastes have changed and definitely my taste in music has changed. Um, or, or if not my taste, then my um, my kind of desire to appear cool or to appear like I know what I'm doing or to really care what anyone else thinks. You know, when you're older and your world shrinks slightly, then you don't um, you don't really care about these things as much. But this idea of favourites, which I want to get your opinion on, I just thought, well, we, we often talk about our favourite film, our favourite book, our favourite album, uh, even our favourite food. And I don't think that we ever can really have an overall favorite because my you know my answer to that question now what's my favorite album like right now it might be i mean last year i loved the future islands album i i really love uh, the, the local natives i've listened to a lot in the last couple of years if i look at my last fm profile and my all my scrubble since 2006 you know damien rice says i don't think he's even in the top 10 artists but the way i tried to think about it was um what was my most favourite um, when it was my favourite. So I think our favourites change constantly as we grow and, and we change as people. Um, but then perhaps we just, if we're kind of put on the spot or we have to go on a podcast to talk about these things, then, I, you know, my theory was, okay, just choose the one that you think um, has the most, had the most uh, resonance at the time where you, you know, you really remember loving that particular thing at that particular time. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I also think that it probably depends on the kind of person you are as well. And that I think I might be the kind of person, I imagine that you could be as well, who would think especially hard about that question, depending on who was asking, like which company you were in and what you thought the person you were talking to might expect or want to hear you say, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, and I, one of the other things I said was in the podcast not to re, not to sort of reiterate all of that, but it, I, I, one of the albums I was going to, th- well, one of the albums I was thinking about choosing was uh, Bonnie Vare's uh, "Forever Forever Ago," um, which I think is in my top two favorite album titles. Have you got a favorite album title? I put you on the spot there. I know. <laughs> yeah, t- I mean, come off it seriously. Um... What about? Uh, now 10 I, I all I can think about is offspring and I don't know why that's so bizarre <laughs> um and that is were you an offspring fan I, I was actually but that's because I had a, I had an American pen pal who from Alaska who sent me um CDs before they came out in the UK so she sent me offspring so you were a fan of uh, you were a fan of uh is no it the offspring, or was it offspring? Anyway, carry on. Uh, no, I, I, I can't off the top of my head tell you my favourite album title. That's ridiculous. Well, this is a diversion. I love uh, Forever, Forever Ago, um, and I also love Jeff Buckley's um, second album that he didn't particularly give permission uh, to uh, for anyone to uh, release, uh, and that is uh, Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, I was going to say that it's exactly the same with books in terms of having not necessarily one favourite, but a favourite for a certain time. And I'm there are a few books that I'm a bit scared or rather reticent maybe to go back and reread because they were so much my favourite when I read them and I so loved them. And I am a little bit concerned that I might go back and not quite love them as much. 
In particular, I could give you example Catch-22. I read when I was backpacking around Asia in my <laughs> wild, carefree days. Um, and it was passed around a lot, actually, that book on the road. Um, and I was just in a very happy place at that time. I think maybe since I've talked to people about it in the years following, people have said, oh, nah, didn't really, didn't really do it for me. I didn't find it funny. And I'm like, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't ever reread it again because I loved it so much. And it might just have been that I was in, you know, an extremely happy place. And what do you think to... Um... What do you think to finding out things about, say, an author that you didn't know at the time? So if you loved an author, um, or even a book, actually, and you you kind of loved it for what it was, and only later you found out something terrible about the author, or you, you found out you disagree with them politically, or um, or something like that, does that affect your the way you look back on your favourites? Not so much with authors. I'm thinking, I, I also really enjoyed The God of Small Things by Aaron Datty Roy, Um and she's had quite an interesting career, I would say, since The God of Small Things, which won the Booker Prize, in that she hasn't really done that many novels, but she seems to have been quite political with her writings. Um, and I, 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 nothing can touch the book. Like, in, I'm, I'm not sure whether I would love it as much again if I read it, but it doesn't really matter to me what she's done since because she did that at that time. I, I, and forgive me if, um, if I'm ruining, ruining everybody's childhood, but I, I heard that Roald Dahl wasn't that nice a guy. Yes, now that's actually quite interesting. Um, my mum talked a lot about that because she read the autobiography of his wife, Patricia Neal, who, um, who had a lot of revelations in that book about him as a, as, um, as a husband and as a human being. Yeah, that's quite true. I'm just wondering if it was your mum that might have given me that information. Maybe your mum's just on a slow she campaign. Yes, and also with Ted Hughes. Do not get her started on Ted Hughes. Yeah, well, he's a, but he's a good example of this, isn't he? Yes, I mean, especially this is very topical, actually, because there's a new um, a book about his life which has been released against the wishes of his his ex-wife and the, and the family and all that. So it's the non-authorised um, life of Ted Hughes, and it's it's been getting a lot of a lot of interesting. Well, it's been sparking a lot of interesting discussion about separating people from art and whether whether if you put if you're an artist, if you're a writer or a poet, then you put yourself up there to be picked apart and whether it's just fair game for the rest of your time. Because their relationship, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, was in their poetry. And so does that mean then that their, that their lives are ours to discuss endlessly? And I suppose that comes with a, a certain level of uh, sort of fame, if that's if that's the right word. Um, but I also think it's why debut debut novelists are. Um, um, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a certain thing about being a debut novelist that you that no one knows about uh, about you, and and as a as a reader, you you kind of you take the work for what it is, unless someone comes with a huge, you know story or a certain amount of baggage like the author most of the time you know there's not a lot of marketing that goes on around um uh, of the book uh, that goes on uh, the, you know the book isn't marketed um with the author kind of front uh, at the front if that makes sense that's a really badly phrased couple of sentences but <laughs> i've lost the ability to talk i apologize it's not a it's a bad moment to do that i'll try again 
it's not very often that books are promoted and uh, debut novelists are promoted kind of with the book. The book is pushed forward and the novelist isn't necessarily certainly the kind of the case with me whereas as soon as you're um, you know a popular well-known author then of course the publisher is very quick to say look this is by Steve Mc Steve McWrights a lot and he's fantastic because you read the first book by Steve McWrights a lot and um, and and then that's it once you're once you're in that position then you know everything you do from then on will um, be under a different kind of scrutiny or or certainly what you do as a person or what your whatever your views are maybe will be um, entwined with your work whereas when you're a debut author um, that happens less so because uh, it's it's kind of you know you don't have that reputation baggage yes well you know we you could argue that we are making rods for our own backs by uh, doing this like having this podcast and we could just, we could just uh, prod along and and um, have our have our careers completely separate to any sort of public profile beyond you know a Twitter account and a Facebook page. The fact that we sit here, especially podcasting, I think, because you, you know we do go wrong, we do say the odd thing we shouldn't, and or at least not that we shouldn't, but that we might want to phrase better, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and it's there, it's out there, it's uh, it's attached to us forever. It's and, true, uh, and it is difficult to think of authors with very strong online profiles who who aren't in hot water or who who don't have to defend themselves or don't you know I mean I can't think of any authors that just are happy la 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 everybody loves them online I think it's it is very very difficult to be um to be a well-known author let's just say Imagine it must be extremely difficult to be Joanne Harris. Yeah. Who are we going to talk about later? We are. Um, and so I guess when I see that Joanne Harris has a new book out, then of course I'm thinking about her as a person because I, I, I see what she what she does online. So you kind of feel like you know her. Um, but I t- we were talking in our, in our last season of the podcast about... Um, Murakami, do you remember he he got he his new book came out just before we we took our break, The Buried Giant, and we were talking about the fact that he is a writer who likes to do something entirely new and unexpected with every book, um, which in itself is something that people come to expect of him, I guess. So it's it's not like you're gonna you just expect that his next book is going to be entirely different. It's the same thing as as expecting that somebody's next book is going to be the same thing, I guess. Oh yeah. How on earth did we get onto talking about this? We're... Well, I went on a I went on a podcast about music. Oh, that's right. Well, look at that. We're still, we're talking about writers anyway. Hurrah! Um, but it was it, yes. I was also going to to come back to that uh, um, the fact that you were on that podcast to ask you about whether you ever listened to um, Desert Island Discs and our listeners in America. I'm not sure whether Desert Island Discs has ever been done in America. I'm not sure. We'll have to find out. I think they're probably just the same thing. Yeah, so on Radio 4 in the UK, Desert Island Discs has been going for donkey's years, hasn't it? Um, famous people are invited on to um, to give, if they were on a desert island, which records would they take with them? I can't remember how many choices they get. I think they get seven or eight or something. Um, and this week I was listening to Keith Richards. I don't suppose you happen to hear his, his episode, Ian? No. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um there is a person who has struggled all his life 
and I'm not going to say the obvious there um, because he has struggled obviously with all sorts of substances, but um, he struggled to not be or, or to get away from his reputation and that that public persona. And it was absolutely fascinating to listen to his to his his choices. I would highly recommend anybody listening to this podcast to um, to have a listen to that Keith Richards on Desert Island Discs. It was really really interesting. And he had seven choices, so choosing one album, I can imagine, was 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 difficult, very difficult. This episode of the Right for Your Life podcast is sponsored by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Now, as you probably know, we writers are expected to have some kind of online platform to show off our work and build an audience. That always starts with a website. I made my first website in 2008 and spent the next six years pulling my hair out. Of course, at first I thought it was sort of fun to have things break and to waste my evenings messing around with HTML, broken plugins and bad tutorials on YouTube. But then I realised I might actually be better spending that time doing something useful. You know, like, like writing. And so last year, I found and fell for Squarespace. Squarespace makes it incredibly easy to set up your own website, whether you're a budding author, freelance copywriter, or like me, both of the above. It's all drag and drop, which means that you can take one of Squarespace's stunning starter templates and make it your own in no time at all. And every site made on Squarespace is automatically going to be responsive, which means that your website will scale to look great on any device. Like I said, it's incredibly easy to use. But if you do have a problem, there's no need to waste your time trying to learn skills that you neither have nor want. Because Squarespace has a support team who are always there for you when you need them, with 24-7 support via live chat and email. Got some wares to sell? That's no problem too. Squarespace has commerce built right in. Every website comes with a free online store, which means from ebooks to actual real life goodies, you can flog what you've got from your own site. And finally, cover pages. If you've got something specific to shout about, or if you just want to get a site up sharpish while you work on the full shebang, Squarespace's cover pages feature allows you to set up a beautiful one page online presence in minutes. How much does all this cost? Well, not a lot. Squarespace starts at just $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you decide to sign up for the annual plan. Head to squarespace.com WFYL and get started with a free trial, no credit card required, and start building your website today. Even better, when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code WRITE, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get 10% off and show your support for Right for Your Life. So, thank you to Squarespace for their continued support of 5x5 and the Right for Your Life podcast. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Ooh, intrigue in the world of poetry this week, Ian. Did you hear about the plagiarism scandal? I've not been on top of the uh, scandals this uh, last couple of weeks. It's, um, I'm, I'm kind of scandal-free. Well, I've been scandalised. Oh, it, my goodness. Yeah, honestly. Um... I would like to share with everybody this this little story um, that I read this week because it just seems so crazy that you think, why? Why, why, why? Um, so there is apparently a poem, uh, no, not a poem, a poet, who um, has been caught. Um, and 
She is a poet who um, is extremely prolific. She is very well thought of um, in the northeast of England where she uh, works. She has a PhD, a poetry PhD. She teaches for the Open University and she has two collections of poetry published. Um, and um, oh, sorry, are, are we going to say her name, or are we purposely avoiding her name just to avoid uh, just to avoid any uh, litigation? Ah, well, I mean, her name's going to come up. We'll put her in the show notes, right? In um, uh, where will people find the show notes? By the way, just quickly, Ian. Five by five dot tv slash wfyl slash one five five. Yes. Well, poor old Cherie Mac will be named there anyway because she's in the article, um, and uh, people might be interested anyway to go and see. Um, well, I, d- I think you can still get hold of her books, or you can certainly see her online. Her website was oh, not surprisingly down when I went on to have a look. But um, but anyway. So she's she's been pinching poems, hasn't she? She's not just been pinching poems. I mean, this is that that's kind of putting it mildly. Um, this all started with the launch of her second book. Um, a poet went along um, to the launch and then had the book and realised that one of the poems in the book, when she had a look was basically her poem, just with some of the the words changed around. So like a few of the nouns here and there were kind of changed and and switched out with something else, but otherwise the same poem. Um, And she tried to follow this up and she talked to the publisher, but apparently they weren't really very forthcoming or they weren't interested in in kind of investigating further. So um, with a few other people they investigated and they found out that virtually all of the poems in this collection were other people's poems that she just changed a few words on. So it wasn't it wasn't that she'd borrowed ideas or phrases, um, even sentences or anything like that from other poets. She just used their poems and then she just like cut and pasted words <laughs> out of them. Um, and some of these poets were quite well-known poets as well. Um, and you just think, why, why, why? Why do that to yourself? Um, and there's quite an interesting article, which we'll put in the show notes, that was asking, you know, could this be a form of self-harm that you know? I mean, if you if you kind of use the, an odd word here or there that you've, you've been inspired by somebody else and you've seen it and you thought, I'll oh, just take that, or even like a couple of words put together, you know, maybe you won't be found out. Maybe if you copy a whole poem from somebody, you might not be found out even in this day and age, you know. But if you actually... Just all of your poems are other people's poems. Of course you're going to get found out. Why would you do that to yourself? You know, poetry doesn't make you rich and famous. So, you know, you're not a poet. You're not writing poetry. So why are you pretending to write poetry? It's um, it's a bit of a strange case. Um, uh, you sent this uh, information through. I wasn't aware of this, but having read through the bits and pieces that you sent to me, I thought it was very um, odd. You say that it doesn't, you know, you're kind of asking why, and, you know, she, uh, she'll she never get away with it. But she sort of did for two collections, a couple of awards, and a lectureship at the Open University. She didn't do bad. No, but, I mean, you must, come on, I mean, in all that time, you're kind of thinking, oh, when am I going to get found out? I feel, <laughs> this is going to sound absolutely outrageous, what I'm about to say now. I'm not I'm not necessarily likening her to a serial killer. But you know, like serial killers who, who send letters cut out and they say, oh, you know, you'll never catch me. And they have like signatures and they really just want to be found out. And they want are people you, to um, appreciate their work. Are you, are you referring specifically to the bodyguard? 
if you want me to, is it your favourite film? Don't worry, you don't have to answer that. I know that it probably was back in 1991, but probably not anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, of course, you, this, you, you must be doing this because you kind of, you kind of can't not do it. I, I, I feel extremely, extremely sorry for her. But the reason that I think it's important to talk about it is because, you know, I mean, I have a book of poems that I've had published. I would love to think that they've inspired other people. Of course, that would be wonderful. But I have absolutely no control over what happens to them once they're out in the public domain. And people could have, I could, my poems could be in other people's books. People could be standing at open mics reading my poems out to the people and people could be going, that's a rubbish poem. Or, oh, I really like that poem, congratulations. That's just the way it is, isn't it, I guess? And what did you say this uh, uh, poet's name was? Cherie Mack. I wonder if um, we should write a, a charity single for all the lost earnings um, of all the poets who she plagiarised. And it, and, and it could be, we, it could go, Sherry, a Sherry, oh, Sherry Mack, we want our poems back. <laughs> I... I... If I'd known you were going to do that, I would have accompanied you on the xylophone. Let's do it. Sherry Mac. Sherry. Give the poems back no. now. No, yeah. that's... That wasn't right. Well, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. We've got a couple of months before Christmas to get this record out there for people. Charity single. Um, anyway, are you worried about your work being used in ways that you do not appreciate? Oh. I'm more concerned about my work being used as a doorstop than I am a, as uh, <laughs> as anything else. Um, I, I, one of the, I was reading this um, uh, uh, piece on um, littleatoms.com. That'll be in the show notes, show notes as well, talking about this. And the, the example it gave was, it seemed to be that it wasn't that she was just taking, um, you know, word for word people's poetry. It was almost like, it seemed to me, in some cases anyway, or some of the examples that were on this in this article, that she was taking a sentence or, or, a, or a line um, or even a stanza or a couplet and, and the structure of it and almost replacing it syllable for syllable. And it, it seemed to me that that was a very specific kind of cheating because poetry, of course, um, you know, some people say that poetry is uh, a load of all nonsense, including my brother and that anyone can do it. And basically, if it doesn't rhyme, then where's the skill? Um, and of course... <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to read his first collection. Your of brother. Course, <laughs> of, course, um, of course, we know that that's not true. But um, it's, a, it's a bit of a fine line at times, isn't it? You know, it's a, it's a subjective art, you know, and as it is with all writing, you know, what's good and what's not. But if if... Uh, if she's taking an existing poem that is universally um, agreed as being a good poem and and just taking the, the structure of it and the syllable um, count and, you know, the, the, the rhythm and rhyme of a, of a specific sentence and then literally just replacing the words that are being used, that seems like a different kind of, kind of a, a kind of even sneakier maybe kind of, plagiarism where you're you're kind of keeping the structure keeping a few words and then just changing a couple of the metaphors or the um specific um you know nouns um you know kind of overlaying new words almost kind of overlaying your own poem over an existing structure because the structure is 
kind of the difficult thing when it comes to poetry. Yes, but I, 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 I think that that might be giving her slightly too much credit because it is literally just like she's she's put a line through the odd word here and there and just changed those. I don't think she's she's done more than that. On so on the, certainly on the ones that I I saw anyway. Like you know, for example, the boats were tied in the harbour at night, and then she's written the boats were tied in the field at night, like that kind of thing. You know? I mean, that doesn't that doesn't sound like a good place to keep any boats. <laughs> well, that's why she got found out because she's no no. But um, yeah, I, I I do know that it's a fine line, and, and everybody is inspired, and you know nothing is new. Nothing we do is new. Let's all just accept that right now. There's only seven types of stories in the world. We're all saying the same things. I saw a brilliant video, um, which is an old one, recently about the fact that every successful pop song in the world is based on the same four chords. Every, and and it's uh, the, this, these comedy guys from Australia do it. Um, maybe we should put that in the show notes as well, just randomly. Um, so that, you know, it's making something entirely new is probably a bit of a tall order in this day and age. I mean, you know, we have been using letters to to communicate what we want to say for, like, you know, thousands of years. It's true. And, the, well, let's, um, let's, let's say it how it is. We all have our literary influences, don't we? And, and we all have our heroes in whatever, whatever kind of art form we particularly like. And, you know, we have our, dare I say, our favourite books and favourite authors. So we're all informed by, um, by something or someone. I think that's just the way, the way it is. And, and, so, um, and so to an extent, uh, we're always kind of pinching things from different parts of culture based on the things that we like ourselves or the authors that we enjoy reading. Um, and, and the real challenge then is to take all those influences and work out who you are and take them and, and make your own thing. And uh, this is just kind of how it works. And, um, you know, it wouldn't, you know, perhaps we should add this to the Right for Life drinking game, but still like an artist by Austin Cleon. Um, uh, that's uh, kind of the fundamental premise behind his little book, which I still highly recommend. And um, I did a little Google search because I, th- I thought, I'm sure he's there's a, something specific about this that Austin Cleon has written. And, I, you know, it's in the book. But also he has a blog post, which is 25 quotes to help you steal like an artist. And um, I picked out two or three of those, which I would like to share with you now, which kind of underline what I'm saying. And that's that it's, uh, um, you know, we all kind of steal art in some kind of form uh, and in some way or another but it's what we do with it. It's how we forge our own path with those influences that we kind of collect. So we have, let me read you these quotes. We have um, Wilson uh, Meisner, who I, who I don't really know. I feel like I probably should. Uh, he says, uh, that's not the, that's not the uh, football from, from Castaway, is it? Wilson Meisner. Wilson! Don't. Don't we all cried at that bit. Anyway, carry on. He says, if you steal from one author, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's research. Uh, T.S. Eliot, he says, A good poet will usually borrow from authors remote in time or alien in language or diverse in interest. Um, And then Jean-Luc Godard, who of course was the uh, captain of uh, the uh, Starship (laughs) Enterprise, uh, says, It's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. (laughs) 
And that's kind of my point. It sounds like she's just gone full out for the plagiarism as opposed to the stealing like an artist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is a really, really tricky area. I, do you know, I think for me, a good, there are two types of good poets in the world. You could divide all good poets into two types. Ones that make me want to go and write a poem because they inspire me and I think that's amazing and I want to write. And ones that make me want to go and cry and curl up on the sofa because I feel like I will never be able to do what they do. So that, that first group of poets, I think, have been really instrumental in helping me to, to write and to, you know, become a poet myself. People who you think, that, that, that stuff's really cool. I can do this. I can do it. But it doesn't mean that I, I actually would ever, ever write what they've written. Now, there is a slight exception about this, and I think it might be mentioned in the article that will be in the show notes, and that is the the kind of modern phenomenon of writing poems after other poems or after other poets. Um, and I've written one of those. I was so inspired by D.H. Lawrence's poem, The Hummingbird, that I wrote a poem of my own. And I will admit that there is one phrase in there which is from his poem, but I did it, it's, it's blatantly obvious it's, first of all, it says that the poem is, is after D.H. Lawrence's Hummingbird. And it, in the poem, I make it obvious that I am, that that phrase was said by D.H. Lawrence. So that's entirely different. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, um, again, you showing your influences. I think that that's fine. I mean, uh, you, one thing that happens if you uh get your book reviewed is that you will have people saying oh this sounds a bit like such and such it happens way more in music you say oh you know you know how many bands have sounded like the beatles in reviews and uh, whether they do or not it's just it's you're constantly being compared to others and that's and that's fine and i think in that case you're just showing your influences and your um and it's a very specific type of poem this this is all part of um, defining who you are as a writer, isn't it? I think you, you kind of mm-hmm. you can either you write you either write a bit like Ray Carver, um, but in your own way, or you can write a bit like Barbara Cartland and in your own way. And for me, I'm or look a more, bit like Barbara Cartland. That's also <laughs> an option too. <laughs> and um, for for me, that's you know I, I I've. I love Ray Carver. There are various other uh, authors that I really, uh, really like, or books that I really like, and sort of my writing. And I guess me as an author, I'm an amalgamation of those things uh, and those people. Um, are you allowed and, to call him Ray? He doesn't like Raymondo. <laughs> Mainly, it just makes it sound like you're your pals, or you you were, you know. I don't know. What would you call him? Raymond. Raymond. Well, he's. I think he's commonly called Ray Carver, isn't he? I've I never mean, seen I, his name written as Ray Carver. That's why it's just. It sounds really funny. It sounds like you know. All right, Ray. Yeah. Well, we were. We used to drink together in the sixties. Uh, oh, um, wouldn't that have been awesome? Don't you think? Probably not. Don't you want people to look back at us Ian, and talk about us being like in a, in a in a group that used to sit in like a cafe and like bash out our ideas and stuff? You know. Like, I know. And don't you think we're ruining all that by doing <laughs> by this? doing this podcast? <laughs> Totally. Is it time for the listener's question? Uh, sounds like it. Good. Would you like to uh, introduce the listener's question this week? Actually, it's, yeah, well, it is a question. 
yeah, it's a, it's a question. Um, well, there's a question mark at the end, so it must be. Um, so we've we've linked two topics. So we previously said we were going to talk about Joanne Harris, and that's because that she recently did a speech or a, a talk of, of some kind, and she put forward a twelve point writer's manifesto, and this all came with a bit of publicity, which was talking about. Um, excuse me. A bit of windy pops. A bit of windy oh pops no! Right at the end. Drinking game, windy pops. Yep, that needs to be added. Yep, carry on. And um, and about reader entitlement, and we have a, a, a question here that simply says it's from Alison Drennan. Uh, that's uh, A Drennan, D R E double N A N. Thank you for the question, Alison. Um, on Twitter, you should say. That, on Twitter, yeah. sorry, that's that's uh, that's a handle on Twitter. The question is uh, much shorter than the lead up to the question. It's thoughts on reader entitlement? Question mark. Yes. Uh, and this is because in Joanne Harris's 12-point writer's manifesto, um, she says that, oh, I'm not sure whether it's directly or indirectly, that there needs to be a bit more respect for writers from readers. What gives readers the right to feel that writers are employed by them and that they they get to determine how that their art is created? Because with the internet and, and social media, that's that's what's happening. People feel like they have a right to say to a writer, I know that's that's rubbish and you shouldn't do it like that and why are you doing it like that and I want this to be done next time and things like that. Have I summed that up? I mean, that sounded so intellectual. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's that's the gist of it. I think it's also um, it, the 12-point the, the writer's manifesto that Joanne Harris put together as well. Um, was a lot about how the author will behave, and it was about staying true to your principles. and And I know that one of the one of the points in the manifesto was not selling out, even though you want me to. That was, I think, the, the phrase, uh, or even if you ask me to, something like that. Um, I, I, I mean, personally, and um, the reality is that uh, I don't have enough readers as an as an author. I don't have enough readers for this to be a problem. Like no one is sending me messages saying when's the next um, Ian Broom novel coming, even if there might be some people who are interested and would love to know when the next Ian Broom novel is coming. I, you know, I'm, I, I think that there probably are a few, but I don't have, you know, a, a wide enough readership for this to be a problem. So I find it quite difficult to, to understand what the problem potentially is. Well, what about if with reviews? Or if people leaving, for example, Goodreads reviews of your first book and whether, you know, that people feel that their opinion about that should be taken into consideration for your next book. Well, the nearest, the nearest thing I don't know. I don't know if it's entitlement. Entitlement suggests to me like they should. Um, it's a bit like the the George R R Martin thing about waiting for his you know the next instalment of uh, Song of Ice and Fire. That's and people are like you know what are you doing, man? <laughs> you know people are actually saying to him, I hope you don't die basically, before you release them, otherwise we're going to be really angry. That's kind of an, a, a certain kind of entitlement. When it comes to reviews and things like that, um, you know, a lot of people would argue that the reader is entitled because they are very much entitled to have a view on the book that they have read. What I think... Um, this I think some of this just touches on things we've talked about previously when it comes to people not understanding... Uh, some Some readers not necessarily fully understanding what it means to be an author and we we said last week about this being um different with a podcast and and that hopefully me and you were trying to be um honest about 
our experiences of being, um, you know, basically authors who've had a book out for a couple of years and, you know, we know, we've been through all this. And I think that we have this, uh, we, because we do this show, I mean, there aren't that many authors doing podcasts where they get to explain these things in detail and talk about their lives and, and, and their thoughts and where they are with their book. I mean, it's quite, a, quite an unusual thing that we do. Um, but I think it all comes down to readers not fully understanding what it, t- what it means to be an average writer, as in, you know, the average, you know, median writer um, or author. And... And that comes down to how much uh, we get paid, uh, which is, you know, very, very little, um, if anything at all in some cases, um, and how much uh, influence we have over our work. And, you know, ultimately, we come back to it again on how much time we have available to spend on our work. And uh, and, and for me and you, which we've shared a number of times, of course, uh, it's very little apart from being you know, having young children, we've, we've got, um, you know, full-time jobs and all that kind of thing, which we've talked about endlessly, tick it off on the drinking game. But I think that part of the idea of reader entitlement is related to the view of an author as being someone who does it all the time. It is their living. They have they don't get writer's block. They don't, uh, they don't, you know, they don't have other things to tend to in their lives or they don't you know this you know book promotion and marketing this is just there is a lot it is a job ultimately um and i don't know that when it comes so to you're thinking quantity that this is the reader entitlement to that to, to de- demand quantity rather than to demand the how the content comes out uh or maybe it's both i mean that's just kind of this is what I'm saying. I'm not sure how much of it I've experienced. I guess in terms of the the, the quality of the book, um, I I have I have openly been frustrated at people complaining about my book being de- like in. This is the quote I often get of being depressing, um, which I think is just ludicrous um, as a as a as a form of feedback. Like a book is not you know, a book. Is, you can't you don't say a book is too happy or to any you know it's such a stupid thing to say in, in my opinion crikey i'm i'm they don't say answer, right. they don't say, Ooh, they don't say they say don't answer uh, your reviews i'm i'm exploding that myth um so i think there is uh, things like that but you 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 do have to kind of take it on the chin as an author those kinds of things because it's in review format i think that's that is kind of another part of it is it's the idea that an author doesn't have a right to answer back because whenever you do, you just get told uh, that you're a whinging, complaining author and, you know, the reader is entitled to effectively say what they want. Mm. Yeah. I'm sorry, I've done a lot more talking there than I was intending to and I don't think I've really made any sense. No, I mean, I think we've opened up a can of worms, basically. Um, as I said earlier, I think Joanne Harris is always interesting online, always, often rather, at the receiving end of a lot of vitriol. Um and this this piece is, is you know her her manifesto is way more balanced than you know all the clickbait headlines surrounding it you know about reader you know respect and all that kind of stuff um, and I just I, I I do have a lot of respect for her. I think it's she's doing a great service for writers I th- I feel personally that's just how I'd like to finish off there. I think that Joanne Harris is great. She's always got very, very uh, insightful things to say about writing and being an author. I thought her 12-point writer's manifesto was, you know, it made sense to me. And, you know, I, I kind of 
fundamentally agree with her. I think it's just difficult to, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think personally I can feel myself kind of dancing around the uh, problems I had on Goodread that time, which I've sort of mentioned on the podcast before, where I had to have a couple of reviews taken down because it got a little bit personal, as in they did towards me. Um, and I've never really fully explained it because I figured the best thing to do is just basically, as I said before, is to shut up and not sound like a whinging author. Um, but I have mentioned before how much it affected me. It really got to me and affected my internet usage in general for quite some time. Um, and I, But I don't think I've ever fully sort of told the story of, of you know, how it was basically linked to this podcast um, in some ways, like some of the comments. Um, I, I think some listeners would have sort of probably probably saw it unfold and read what was put but it was fairly unpleasant and I think when I'm talking about this I I kind of can't help but uh, head back to that particular incident and get a bit um, antsy about it <laughs> oh yeah I know well I'm, I'm sorry I'm sorry that you have to end the podcast this week thinking about that <laughs> Well, it's it's absolutely fine. It was a long time ago, and nothing really bad happened at all. Um, but it, <laughs> I, I, maybe there was a certain sense of um, entitlement. It was definitely a case of someone thinking that they knew me much better than they actually did. But the idea of someone thinking that they know you when you're basically just like a, a normal bloke on the internet, um, or just a normal bloke in real life who happens to be on the internet a bit, mm. um, it, that's the bit where it gets a bit odd and a bit unpleasant. Yeah, quite. Um, where on earth can people find you if they want to communicate with you? They can uh, find me on Twitter, at The Flying Poet. I would be delighted to receive tweet information, questions, anything you'd like to send in my direction. That's nice. That's nice. If you want to talk about Star Wars, that's fine. We haven't talked about it this week. That's fine. But I had to hold it in, Ian. But anyway, carry on. You tell everybody where you are to be found. Yeah. We can talk about it on the next episode, that's fine. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I've still not seen them, but, um, you know, maybe maybe the what? next year. Maybe Christmas. We'd oh, be, my God. Look, we can't talk about this at the end of the podcast. We have to we have to talk about this next week now. We've talked about this before. <laughs> we just lose track. We've got to totally lose track of everything we've said. Oh, dear. Um, you can find oh. me on Twitter at uh, Ian Broom, I-A-I-N-B-R-O-O-M-E, or, and we have our own uh, hashtag for the show, which is WFYL. So if you want to ask a specific question or you want to find like-minded souls, then you can go to F... Uh, no, not F. WFYL, hashtag... Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ian, like-minded souls, that sounded like a dating site. Seriously. That's kind of what it's like. Meet in with uh, like-minded writers on WFYL. Exactly. Well, it's funny you should say that because um, some people might have been waiting for us to talk about... The possibility of the right for your cli- right for your life. I've totally lost. I've totally lost it. I've lost the plot. <laughs> Let's talk about everything else next time. Don't talk about anything else now. <laughs>